Hi, and welcome to Deer IQ, where smart hunting begins. I'm Adam Lewis, 20 plus year educator, 30 plus year deer hunter, untastefully seasoned outdoor writer, and I'm here to help you achieve what we all hope for, to be truly greater deer hunters. This is part four in our series, Public Land Hunting Mastery, and asking the question, is public land hunting ruined? Today we're with my friend Manny, and we're going to jump ahead a little bit in our series as we look at and discuss hunting systems. This is related to our current topic in public land hunting, so I thought I'd throw it in. And looking at systems he used to get cracks at a true monster on public land in Michigan. As we start, I want to challenge you to do a couple things. First, download our free journal to use with this podcast. That's really going to help. Second, as you do that, here are the top look-fors or things to look for during this episode. What is Manny's initial approach to find bucks on public land? How did he establish a buck named Frazier's routines instead of trying to pattern them? How does Manny use trail cameras much differently than most? And what vital intel does this give him? And there's a ton more in there. There really is. It's an awesome story. You'll want to listen good on this one, guys. And I have a few challenges at the end that I believe will truly take your hunting up several notches. So make sure you stick around and listen for those. And now let's get to the podcast and up your deer IQ. All right, here we are. I'm here with Manny Ferriulo. And uh, welcome to the podcast, Manny. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Yeah, Um, we are in the season long theme of trying to answer the question and look at what it takes to be a greater deer hunter and looking at great hunters um, to really try to answer that question, try to uh, for all of us to be greater hunters. And we're in the series within that. Uh, the systems of great deer hunters. And one thing that I have noticed over the years from a lot of what I'd call much greater deer hunters is uh, they have systems for things. They have ways of doing things that really uh, go to work for them. And Manny is no exception to this and is the reason why I have him on the podcast today. Um, To get started here, though, uh, what is a system? Just to define that. It's a set of procedures according to which something is done. It's organized, an organized method. And it's something, when you look at deer hunting, it's repeatable. It makes work easier. It really goes to work for you um, and tames what I call chaos and Murphy or the law of Murphy, which is going against every deer hunter, right? And that's one of the biggest things we can do is really to minimize the effects of those and it really a system automates success. So a lot of these greater deer hunters or guys that have a lot of experience, they've, they've come up with these, I've noticed. And I really highly suggest uh, every hunter be working on those. And Manny uh, definitely has some of those that he's going to share with us here today. So before we jump into this, uh, I know Manny, it's kind of an interesting story. Uh, I met Manny arm wrestling. And, um, I will have to say, uh, that was, we, we were both were just first starting arm wrestling and, uh, I beat Manny and, but, uh, so I'm one to know against Manny, but uh, I haven't been arm wrestling the last couple of years and he has, and he has, is really one of the better arm wrestlers in the state of Michigan. So, um, 
but that's my claim to fame. Uh, but that's how we met. And the, there probably won't be a rematch because uh, oh, come now, on. now I can claim forever and just let you get better and better and better and claim I'm undefeated. But anyways, um, through, through that, that's how we met. And we started talking and realized we we're both deer hunters. And he starts telling me about this public land Michigan buck he'd been chasing for several years, which was this monster. And, you know, when someone says that, you, you don't know what they mean when they say monster, right? That's different for different people. Yeah. And then later on, he sends me these pictures and realized that, yeah, this was a monster. And this is kind of, we're going to get into the story of this buck named Frazier. And so if you, if you want to, before we jump into that, Manny, uh, anything else that I need to add there just to introduce, introduce you to people out there that wouldn't know you? I'm not really. Um, I mean, arm wrestling and deer hunting and and singing at church or about my passions. I'm, I do arm wrestling so much now I stopped coaching baseball. So, and every, like every getting close to around this time of year, end of July, beginning of July, start food plots or whatever on my own private stuff. And, uh, I'm start morphing from an arm wrestler to a deer hunter, but you're always a deer hunter. Um, and Manny is in Michigan, uh, and this is a public land deer, which is another crazy part about this. Uh, and I'll link the story below. I actually wrote a story about this for uh, a Michigan magazine, um, the buck named Frazier. And it's really just a ph phenomenal story in general. But um, we want to really take a look at your systems and how you track this buck over five seasons, had many encounters with him, and we'll save the ending of the story, but there's a lot to learn from this uh, encounter with this just mega giant public land Michigan buck. So let's start there with just a brief overview. Tell us about Frazier. Frazier, um, well... My previous bow hunting experience was up north in the big woods. So when you come down south to um, ag fields and different fingers of stuff, um, I found a piece of state land, looked pretty good on a map, decided I'd go in. Um, and my approach to finding deer is very simplistic um, in certain ways. Um, you go to every deer goes to food. Now they might go to food in the middle of the night, like those ag fields, but it's, they're going to show up there. So I normally start off by walking around and pinpointing spots on the fields that I want to check corners, things like that, that butt up to bedding or whatever. And I'll start a throw out, throw out a camera and I'll start there and whatever shows up, I expect it to be well after dark. Um, and then I'll track it backwards from there uh back into wherever it's going so i did that it was no exception to anything that i did i go out to this new place i pinpointed a couple of spots i walk around the perimeter of these fields until i see a ton of traffic coming out in certain locations i throw up the camera and to my surprise a bachelor group of bucks was showing up and well in daylight on the alfalfa field so um and i was only planning on going to this ground to set up for my daughter's youth hunt uh, at the time. And I found the, that bachelor group and I'm like, there's a couple nice bucks in here. So, um, two of them were identical, um, nine pointers. And the only way to really tell them apart was the brow times were slightly different on one. Uh, and they 
had one had five on one side and four on the other, and the other one was reversed. So that was like the other than that, they were picture perfect identical. So um, I was quite surprised to see them showing up there on the alfalfa field. So I'm like, well, they're not going to stay through this this long. And lo and behold, they did. Um, it was the 2nd of October. I got a pretty good wind uh, and I got on there and one of the uh, nine pointers came out uh, probably an hour before dark. I mean, it's unheard of on state land. Um, and I put an arrow in them um, and it didn't penetrate the penetration that I wanted, uh, but we, I even bought a, brought a dog tracking dog out there. We never found that deer presumed to be dead. So then the rest of the year, I went after the other one um, and played cat and mouse and me learning, trying to find that deer. I was learning the ground as well. Um, and then the off season, I'm like, well, I'm obviously there's some decent bucks there. So I'm going to spend some time over there and maybe learn the ground better than I would have. Uh, and that's when I started, uh, I threw out a couple mineral licks. Uh, which is one of the things I did at the time. You can't do that anymore, which we'll get into in 2019, how that changed Fraser and everything. But uh, in the beginning, I threw out some mineral licks and got them in early summer and got them in velvet, kind of disappeared sporadically throughout that year, hunted them, had a few encounters. Um, and then in 2000, I think it was 17, he started developing like kickers and flyers. And uh, I'm like, I, he's he's nicer than the normal deer. I better, uh, put some, I put more uh, effort into it. I think it was 2000. So, what was the first year just to give us a, a picture? First year, here. I believe was 2015. If I remember. Okay. Yep. Yep. Um, and he was, how, do, how old do you, would you say he was at that time? I think he was about three and a half, two and a half, three and a half. Okay. My guess would be right in there. Um, I, I think three and a half, uh, he had a, they both had bigger bodies than the average uh, two-and-a-half-year-old deer uh, there. It wasn't just the rack size that um, I was guesstimating that off of, obviously, but um, I'm pretty positive he was probably three-and-a-half. It would not be out of the realm of possibility for two-and-a-half, but I would bet three-and-a-half at the time. Um, and then 2017, I put a lot of effort into him in 2017. And in doing so, you had to put a lot of effort into uh, the property. And the property is a really unique property. Uh, normally, I have, and uh, you find this in a lot of hunters, like they'll go to a property and they're like, I'm going to, the hardcore um, DIY guys, like the, they're going to out hike everybody and they're going to go to the thickest stuff and you're going to do the kayaks back there and you're going to do all of that kind of stuff. And that's all in your head to do. And on this particular piece of property, you can't really do it. If you hike, there's multiple roads that crisscross the property so that cut right through it. So if you uh, hike through one, you're just going to hit another road that somebody can park on and come the opposite direction on. And so it made it a little bit unique from what, like, growing up in the big woods, like, I just out-hike everybody and go to spots that uh, people weren't. Uh, so it was a little bit of an adjustment for me. On, I couldn't really rely on that tactic anymore and then there's a huge marsh that swamp that's hundreds of acres and i think i've sent you a video of it and like you turn around in it and it's just reeds everywhere 14 feet tall and you can't there's just little 
cattle trails through there. And like, you can't get back there without busting everything out. Like it's impossible to be quiet. So that's why they get big. Um, Not to mention when people do go in there and bust them out, uh, Frazier, what I found out would always go over to this private land spot uh, that bordered up to a um, condo complex. And I mean, where I found him bedding, you know, I did the walking trails, the public walking trails back through there. And where I found him bedding was, I mean, within throw stones distance of people's door uh, at this condos complex. Um, so in 2015, you had your first encounters. You uh, wounded this buck, never found it. He was the other one. You started chasing him in 2016. And then in 2017, he kind of blew up. Um and so it was kind of game on in 2017, which he was probably a five or six year old deer yeah. and on Michigan public land, which is super rare, right? Even a three year old is, is a pretty good box. But so that's when it was kind of like game on and you started patterning him. Uh, it sounds like, right. You figured out where he was, uh, yes. how he was staying alive, where he was living, this cattail marsh, all this stuff. So how are you getting this how are you figuring this stuff out uh can you go a little more detail with that as you're telling the 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 story here i got off track a little bit hi this is adam lewis with deeriq.com and this is your high iq moment do you know how to find a sanctuary that holds big bucks well our third tip is to look for impenetrable cover if you can see more than a few yards into it then it's probably not thick enough The deer have to feel very secure, and a high stem count area is critical. Having a good visual barrier will also work to your advantage. If you cannot see them, then they cannot see you. This allows you to access the sanctuary unseen and only left to worry about your scent and sound that you make. Thick brush, cattails, weeds and grasses, and early stage clear cut type undergrowth can create such cover. If your natural human reaction is to avoid it because it's too thick and impenetrable, that should be telling the hunter in you not to. Read the full article on Keys to Find Buck Sanctuaries, linked below, along with our free public land hunting guide with detailed new strategies to beat the crowds and still find success. And do you know your Deer IQ? Are you really deer smart? Take our Deer IQ test linked below and find out. Trust me, it's fun, and share it with a buddy and see who really has a higher deer IQ. And now, let's get back to the podcast. How are you getting this? How are you figuring this stuff out? Uh, can you go a little more detail with that as you're telling the, the, the story yeah, I here? Yeah, got off track a little bit. The no. What I would do in the early season, I'm talking early season would be... Um, directly after their you're like your shed hunting um early season is do all the same intel that a lot of people do you go through the woods when nothing's there and you can see everywhere and you're shed hunting and you're looking at where they were all yarded up and all that kind of uh intel but then i'll start putting out mineral licks in, in case of him uh and i started strategically placing them i wouldn't like go to where i thought he was i would put him where i wanted him to be uh or closer to where i wanted him to be and I'd haul out hundreds of pounds at the time uh, to, of these mineral licks. These deer were just destroying them and digging holes in the ground. Uh, and so I'd haul out uh, mineral licks. Um, I had my own concoction that I don't do it anymore. You're not allowed to. So I haven't 
done it in a while. It was a very simple thing from growing up on a farm. And uh, I would go out there and I'd dump out mineral licks. I'd put cameras over it. And that was the early season that I did. Then you get into a round and I get him on him. I have videos and stuff with him, just stubs as he's huge clubs coming off of his head. And you know, that, that that's him. Um, and you watch him grow through all that stuff. Um, he got really finicky in 2017 around cameras. Um, he, you put out a camera and if he spotted it, he wasn't coming back. Uh, I don't know what it was. Uh, I've had deer be a little skittish around cameras before, um, bucks that is, but nothing like him. Like he would, he'd almost look for him. Uh, and if he spotted one, he just left. So I had to be pretty strategic of where I placed those and how I placed them. Um, so this is like but, in, let's say, June, July-ish at some yeah. point? Yeah. Uh, so and when he was like five years old, he probably is where he kind of changed and all of a sudden got... Yeah, he, he got he started getting too smart for his own. Yeah. Um, so mineral licks were a big thing, and I didn't know exactly how big of a thing they were until 2019 when I didn't put them out. Um, it'd be... What I was, what I found out that I was doing is I was patterning his summer patterns based on where I was putting those licks. And so he wasn't necessarily in the places that he wanted to be because those licks determined his daily routine. And so when you establish a routine, I didn't, I didn't even realize it at the time, but I was establishing his routine, which is why I got so many more photos of him than any other hunter, because I knew what he was doing, why he was doing it. Um, and then from the traffic I got on those cameras, um, then I started picking out, okay, where he's coming from and the trails he's coming from crisscross with where I know doe bedding area, doe bedding areas are. And so I would, uh, go to those spots in like May, June, um, I would pick out where I would want to hunt that specific, uh, location, doe bedding area, entry, exit, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I'd pick out where I want to hunt it, how I want to hunt it. I'd pick out the wind direction, everything for thinking of late October, beginning of November. And I would say, he's going to be here. If, or if I bring him here, where do I want to hunt? And then I'd pick out tree I'd pick out everything. And then from there, I would make a mock scrape. So what's the wind direction? What's the thermals usually in that time if I'm in a position for that? And then from there, I would make a mock scrape. My mock scrapes, uh, I mean, a lot of people use ropes and a whole bunch of other stuff. I, I tend to be less is more, especially as a state land hunter. I tend to be less is more for the scents uh, and for um, things that aren't just natural to the surrounding. Uh, I think one of the biggest things of setting a mock scrape earlier in the year is getting it, getting the deer used to using it all year. I, I have scrapes that I've put out for Frazier that I haven't touched in years. And I guarantee you, I can go out there and beginning of October, mid October, and the whole area, the licking branches are used all year long. Um, and I haven't touched them. I haven't refreshed them. I haven't done anything to them. And they are now part of the deer community. Uh, and I know I can go to those spots and hunt and have success. Um, but I'd, I'd set up a licking branch. I would use what was natural to that location, usually either white oak or some kind of evergreen that I would hang or bend over into a spot that I wanted. And I would usually just expose the dirt uh, underneath. Um, Sometimes put just natural, uh, just straight doe urine in it. 
um, expose the dirt, have the branch there. Um, and sometimes depending on the time of year, uh, put, uh, or like a rack rub or whatever on it and let it be. Uh, and then the more, anytime they were stopped using it a little bit, I'd go out there and refresh it, redo something, give it more activity until it just becomes something that was their telephone pole. And that's where it was. And if you do it early enough in the year and if you plan it all out in that kind of a situation, you're literally planning out where he's going to be in the early rut and you're planning out how you're going to kill him and in what wind patterns and time of year you're going to kill him and where you expect him to be coming from and why. Um, That's really big. Let me just pause right here because a lot of people go out and especially in public with, and again, there's a lot of pressure, right? There's a lot of other guys hunting these areas. Um, they will try to pattern the deer, right? You're saying, uh, you are going to set his pattern. That's what you're trying to do. And then you are determining when I can kill him. If I can get him to start habituating himself to things like the salt lick and the, uh, the mock scrapes. Right. Um, I think that that's a kind of a paradigm shift. That's like a reversal for a lot of people. Uh, I'll just kind of summarize this. It's you found a buck in an area, right? You knew his general area. You started getting more details about him off season and through just hunting, right? This was five seasons. So you're, you're accumulating this data, but you, you find his area in the buck you wanted to hunt. You then started patterning him or getting him habituated to where you wanted him to be through things like your mock scrapes and your salt licks. I I think that's, that's big. That's really big. I just wanted to point that out before we just kept kept going anymore because i didn't find out until 2019 how big of a deal that those were and that's Uh, in michigan we're talking folks so you might in other states but yeah michigan changed rules um so okay keep going sorry i had to just jump in there for a second Um, and then what i started learning around 2017 in my efforts to pattern fraser i was starting to learn that and the ground is a little different because you can't, like we've already said, I couldn't out hike people or out do anything. So like, where is he going? Why is he going there? Um, and then a right around September, all of a sudden everything, that, that's one of the times on state land beginning, middle of September. It's one of those times that everything changes. The summer pattern's gone. And it's, that happens on my personal, like private ground too, obviously, but I'm talking, it's differently on state land because the deer get used to their summer pattern and no pressure from people. And then all of a sudden you start seeing parking lots start filling up and all of a sudden cameras go dark or get stolen, <laughs> or uh-huh. like you just go through. And I started learning and I use cameras now a lot still. I know a lot of people don't use cameras anymore. I still use cameras a ton. I just use them a little differently than I used to. I used to use them to find the deer and hunt the deer. Now I'm using them to find the deer and hunt the deer a little, but mostly it's my intel for the next year. And then I use the cameras probably more predominantly now on state land anyway, to pattern the hunter. Because when the hunters show up on a very high pressured state land where I'm at, the deer change based on the pressure that they're getting. So where are the hunters parking primarily? Where are they going primarily? What times are they doing it? Um, 
And then how can I use all of that stuff to my advantage? So, so uh, again, I'm going to pause here. So are you literally putting these cameras on parking lots and <laughs> stuff like that to, uh, to monitor the hunters? Or are you picking this stuff them. up? Uh, close to them. Uh, I'll still throw a lot of uh, cameras in like corners of like um, uh, food plots uh, or ag fields where number one, it's going to catch that corner. There's probably going to be a scrape to show up in the middle of the night at some point. Anyway, I'll right. get whatever buck does that in the middle of the night. Uh, it's not going to be Intel that I can hunt over, but he was at this place at 1030 at night and it's something to go on. But then it's also what time is this hunter coming in here and what where, direction is he going? And he's going into this thicket from this direction at around this time every weekend or what it, whatever it is. So I could show up on the other side of that thicket earlier than he gets there and I can let him push everything to me. So yeah, that's, that's very different. It, it is, you're doing both. You're getting deer information, but you're also, you're focusing on hunter information. You're, you're hunting the other hunters basically. Yes, because yeah. the deer, you, the deer adjust to them. So I learned, I have to adjust. to them. Yep. So for instance, Frazier, he's adjusting to all this hunting pressure that starts showing up in the beginning of September, beginning to middle of September. Sometimes, I mean, it's like a couple days before October uh first and just cars everywhere um so he's adjusting and he his normal summer pattern that he was comfortable going in he's no longer comfortable and so where is he going now and how is he, he's adjusting to it so i have to adjust with him and find out where that is and how can i use this information to my benefit um and shockingly enough like when you start trying to figure out like, where is he going? Some of the obvious places, um, in this, and I think it was at this point I created the map, um, because the I'm map. literally trying to figure out where he's going. Um, so what I started doing, I've told you this, I, I, I finally got serious about him specifically in this plot of ground. Um, and all through the summer, I'd get all these photos. And so I, I created the map. I paid for a map for the, for, I think, Huntera for the, the whole um, area. And then on the map, I started po posting every photo of him. I didn't care about any other buck that I wanted to shoot. It was just every photo of him. Um, and I would color code him with, um, with time of day, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and if it was in the middle of the night, uh, it was a different color. And if it was a green, uh, a green pin, it was a day daylight photo. And so then you shoot a very few. <laughs> there was there wasn't yeah. as many of those, uh, obviously. And then what was the time of year? Uh, and if it was daylight photo in the middle of July, well, who cares as much? I mean, you still care, but not as much. But if it was a daylight photo last year at uh, October seventh, and it was him dog and does October 7th in the daylight. What was the weather pattern? So every, every green pin is the ones I usually focused on. And I look for green pins during hunting seasons, um, especially towards the rut. He would, there were certain times he would, what I call daylighting every year. Um, not the, not that he doesn't get up and walk around on a daily basis in his bedding area or wherever, but like most of the places he bedded, like good luck getting in there. Like he's just, you're losing them. Um, so I started creating all these photos 
every time I took a photo of them or got a photo of them, I would mark it. I would catalog it for the years. Um, and then I started getting to the point of, I'm assuming he's betting most of the time. I, my assumption until this point was that he was betting in this huge hundreds of acres of reed swamp. I call it like, it's just, it's forever. It's insane. And you did send me a video of that and you literally can't see more than a foot in front of your face. So impossible to even go into, let alone hunt. So I start hunting fringe area access points of this. I start moving cameras to fringe access points of this. And all of a sudden my photos and sightings of him just like went down to nothing next to nothing. Uh, I wouldn't say nothing, but next to nothing. And I was, and then I'm starting to run into all these other hunters who are coming out of this reed swamp. They're like, I just jumped this huge deer, blah, 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 blah. But you can't see anything. They can just hear a deer running away. Every deer deer is huge. Um, But then they would talk about the rubs that they had and the rubs that were back there. And so I'm correlating this with it's got to be him, right? I mean, that's your thought process. And then I start looking at, I start getting the same buck coming out uh, of this reed swamp and he's got mud like all the way, all of his legs are covered in mud. He's got mud up to here. He's uh, he is a mainframe six with two drops. Uh, Would have loved to shoot that deer. Um, And then he broke off one antler. Um, And I watched him come out and he was just shredding trees. He was like a bully. He would just shred trees and he was always covered in mud. And I remember it dawned on me, I'm looking through my map and I'm looking at through my phone and I'm in the photos I have of Frazier and I see Frazier on one of the, fo- on one of the photos I have surrounding that reed swamp. And I look at his legs and I'm like, I zoom in, it was a daylight photo and I zoom in on the thing and there's not a speck of mud on him. No mud, yeah. And I'm like, what in the world? How does he go through all that and not have any mud on him? And that's when I started going, he's not in there. He's going through these spots, these access points, and he's just checking does right now. Like, he's not coming from there. It's impossible. And so then I start a readjusting to what I'd done through the summer. And then I start finding little access ways and little, little fingers of stuff. And it, some of them went right next to roads. And some of them were – and I start seeing rubs along all these – overlooked places on bike paths and by bike paths and everything else. But it's like, he could always run into that reed swamp if he wanted to, if he Mm -hmm. had, but he'd rather not. He's going to take the path of least resistance. And as long as he felt safe. And then you have all those hunters that are just out hunting, everybody going through all of that. He's like, he just stayed away from it. Um, And one, like one of the fingers, it's swamp on both sides. And it's literally, 20 yards wide and comes down to like 10 yards at times. And sometimes there's water running over it. Um, and I put up a camera on that trail and I got him all the time and he'd just come down that, that trail. So I remember in 2000, I think it was 17. No, no, 17 or 18. I tell my wife that I am going, I looked at my map looked at the year previous and I said, 
I'm gonna jump in right here, Manny, because this is a great time to stop. We're gonna we're gonna save this story. This is a great story. So um, we're gonna wrap up this segment. We're gonna break this into several segments, but we're, we will finish this story um, in the next segment. So you're really gonna want to hear what happened on this particular story and what happened with Frazier, uh, monster public land buck. But there's so many interesting things in here, and I'll just recap again. Um, you found a buck in his area on highly pressured land, right? Um, and where he generally lived, right? Then you honed in on him with further scouting off season and things. And you set him to your pattern. Instead of you patterning him, you set him to start using, uh, doing what you wanted to do into where you could shoot this buck potentially. Uh, then you made this map. You're like a Sherlock Holmes here putting all these things together, and, and that's kind of what it takes. You made this map like on the uh, TV shows and movies with the, the yarn going everywhere. That's what, It wasn't like that, but it, it had all these pins with all, all this information uh, to not shoot him that year, but to the next year, right? This is You're using year-by-year information as to trying to predict the future of to when you can intercept him the following year, right? Um, better your your locations for the following year. Yeah, fascinating stuff. So we'll get back to the exciting conclusion of this story in the next segment. And also, uh, we have a Deer IQ test that anybody uh, can take. You can go to the website and take it. It's fun. It is short. Um, it may or may not tell you if you're a great hunter or not, but it's it's interesting. It's challenging uh, test, so I invite you guys all to take it, and we'll reveal Manny's score when we come back. So definitely check that out. So as we wrap up, here are some key high IQ takeaways and challenges. First, think about Manny's strategies to key in on one buck and how you may do the same. What are you doing to set buck patterns to your benefit, and how might you up your game in this area? And if you like this podcast, depending on where you're listening, consider rating it, commenting, giving a review, and sharing it with a hunting buddy. That really helps the podcast grow and is greatly appreciated. Okay, and next time we will continue with the exciting conclusion to Manny's story and some high IQ strategies from what he learned. You won't want to miss it, and I'll see you then.